In truth, the young Lord Commander and her king had more in common than either one would ever be willing to admit. Stannis had been a younger son living in the shadow of his elder brother, just as Jon Snow, bastard-born, had always been eclipsed by his true-born sibling, the fallen hero men had called the young wolf. Both men were unbelievers by nature, mistrustful, suspicious. The only gods they truly worshipped were honor and duty. Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week, but we're not going to have a regular episode this week. Jeff got called away for work, so I'm going to be doing a solo episode touching on one of my favorite topics in the series, and that is the relationship between Jon Snow and Stannis Baratheon. This is probably my favorite dynamic in the series, both in terms of how they deal with each other in person, but also just how their characterization and structure of their stories beat against one another, if you look at them in the abstract and think about how they work in the narrative. Melisandre lays out, I think, really effectively in that passage I just read, how the two uh, line up in terms of their character arcs, that both of them have this feeling of being in second place, of always being an also-ran, of being just barely not at the table, able to glimpse how the heroes are living their wonderful storied lives and always living out of that, and instead clinging to a perception of themselves as the most honorable and the most dutiful, and the, the question of where that path is going to lead them. But I think there are also interesting, intriguing contrasts in terms of their position within the narrative structure. John is a POV character, one of the first POV characters, and he is central to the story from the very beginning. He's central to the initial conception and the pitch letter, and also to the story as it's been executed in the book so far. Stannis is a non-POV character, and he's not even found in the original pitch letter. He's someone, it seems, that George uh, conceived of while beginning to write the story, rather than someone being central to it, as John was from the get-go. And Stannis, as I've argued on the main cast, is a conceptually driven character more than I think he is someone uh, functional to the plot mechanics and structure of the story. He's more He exists to make dramatic points, and he acts as a cautionary tale for the main characters. He's both hero and villain in the same skin, a living example of the human heart in conflict with itself. And I think if you put him in context with John, it really illuminates both characters. And that's something I'm going to be talking about bits and pieces uh, and the main cast going forward, but it's a topic I really like and I think uh, bears some individual attention. There's the idea, as George has said before, that everyone is the hero of their own story, that that's something he's trying to get across with A Song of Ice and Fire. And more and more, I think that perception might be the central subject of A Song of Ice and Fire, and that it's built into the POV structure. Everyone has their limited understanding of each other and what's going on in the wider world. No one can get inside anyone else's head, and if they can, it's a terrifying violation. It's the kind of thing you see with Bran and Hodor. You don't want to actually be able to access other people's minds and be able to gain an objective truth that might turn out to be you enslaving other people. So instead, we're stuck inside our own heads. We're stuck with our own perception. As Melisandre says, when she reads The Flames, she's in the position of a reader trying to make sense of a book. And what you see in there, I think says more about you than it says about what's in the flames. As Melisandre herself says about Axel Florent, any cat may stare into a fire and see red mice at play, reveals what you want and you project yourself into it. And I think you can see that theme playing out across all the POV characters and that George is constantly calling attention to the borders of constructed identity and the limits of perception so that what we read out of a character might say more about us. We look, at the, we look up at the same stars, as John says at one point, and we see such different things. 
And I think that maybe the best example of that in A Song of Ice and Fire is probably Daenerys, because George has constructed the story so we don't see her through anybody else's eyes. She's away from other POV characters for most of the series. And even when other POV characters show up in her orbit in A Dance with Dragons, the way George ended up finishing that book was that we still don't see Danny and other people's POV chapters. Tyrion doesn't end up meeting her in that book. Quentin does, but we only see them interact in Danny's POV chapter. Same with Barristan. He only becomes a POV after Danny has already left the area. So it's still it's so it's still this sharp divide between the world as Danny understands it and Danny as the world understands her. And that that uneasy interaction, that coexistence, I think is going to become more and more important to to her story going forward. We've already seen rumors built up around her in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. We spend so much time in those two books hearing about her from a distance from the outside. Right from the beginning of Feast, Dragons, the first where they're talking about her from afar. Reality, the, the true truth, is always obscured. And the Bard's truth may be a distortion, but it's also all we're ever going to get. And Stannis, I think, exists in part to throw this process into sharp relief. As one of the most prominent non-POV characters, we are always on the outside with him. And George emphasizes this by building gaps into Stannis' story. He's absent for the first book. He's just talked about in terms of what he might be up to on Dragonstone, what he might get up to next. He is unseen during the Battle of Blackwater, the climax of his initial campaign. He's never actually pictured on the page during that, unlike in the uh, show episode where we do see Stannis fight directly. Stannis is then not brought back until halfway through book three. Again, the first half of book three, like all of book one, is a bunch of people mentioning that he might be up to some things, but we don't see him until halfway through. He's kept uh, off page during the entirety of book four, as a lot of characters are, because of the split up between feast and dance. But even when he comes back in A Dance with Dragons, he's very prominent in the first half of the book and then increasingly disappears off page for the second half. Other characters orbiting around him and discussing what he might be doing. Our first POVs on Stannis are Maester Cressen and then Davos. And they know him well, they tell themselves. So well, Maester Cressen watched Stannis grow up and uh, parented him when no one else would. Davos devoted himself to Stannis' service, has close and more intimate conversations with him than anyone else seems to. And yet, they can't reconcile the man they remember with the man they see now in the present day of A Clash of Kings. So maybe they didn't know him all that well. Maybe we can't know someone without seeing their thoughts, reading their inner monologue. When we're stuck on the outside, maybe we have to accept the mystery. Or maybe we do have a Stannis POV, and it's Jon Snow. Now, I think Victarion is actually closer to what a Stannis POV would actually uh, be like in terms of tone, in terms of Victarion's specific kind of miserable, resentful nature about being left out of things, but how he's also come to enjoy the taste of that resentfulness and enjoy building up an image of himself as having been deprived and having sacrificed and not being uh, self-indulgent or egotistic like his brothers. And he kind of feeds on that narrative for himself, even as he tries to imitate them and does terrible things along the way. But John reflects Stannis in a lot of interesting ways, too. Victarion's POV, I think, is in part is derived from Stannis, as George kind of exploring those, those themes and motifs in a POV context. But Stannis, I think, in terms of that kind of character ladder, is, is derived from John. He's one step further down. I think he's, he's George trying to explore what John stories what John Snow's story might look like from the outside when it's complete to people who don't have investment in him and the other way around John shows us uh, a narrative in which Stannis is the hero of his own story with which with his POV and thoughts at the center of it this is what it might look like 
John is, from the right, right from the get-go, defined as the bastard, the bastard of Winterfell. He's a sullen outsider, just like Stannis was. John intersects with Donal Noy at the Wall, someone who knew the Baratheons growing up, who has his opinions on the Baratheon brothers, famously as Robert as the true steel, and Stannis as someone who is too brittle. He'll break before he bends. And you can see Donal Noy trying to encourage John in a better direction. He's one of John's earliest mentors who tells him to get along with the other boys of the Night's Watch. And this this gives John the chance to make real connections and form a group, a new pack, a new family around himself, which is something Stannis has never been able to do. At the end of book one, John uh, considers running off to join Rob in his rebellion. And with that Melisandre passage that I quoted earlier, you can see George drawing a parallel between Rob Stark and Robert Baratheon, these two glorious, gorgeous young men riding out ahead of their armies, claiming the crown with the, the, the excitement and thrill of a rebellion and a, a new regime to begin, fighting the hated Mad King in Robert's case or the hated Joffrey in Rob's case. And then in both cases, you have the second son, the second brother, uh, feeling left behind, feeling like they're having to do the, the boring, dangerous, important work on the ground while the other one gets all the glory. And it, John rides off to join with Rob, Except then he gets turned back. He gets turned back by his brothers of the Night's Watch and then Elsie Mormont telling him he has a different duty and the connections he's made in book one, the connections Stannis was never able to make, are able to draw him into this new pack. Stannis is like a version of John who made the opposite decision, of who rode off to join the brother and become part of his rebellion. And Stannis shows us the kind of the, the cynicism and bitterness and disillusionment with that decision years later. And the result is the man we see at the beginning of book two when we meet Stannis, hating his popular older brother and wishing he had made different decisions. This is a version of John who never learned a, a, a different way to think about himself, who was only able to ever define himself by the sun shining on his older brother and never able to come up with his own identity. And that's kind of reflected in the POV structure that we, John is developing his own mindset, his own worldview, his own way of looking at things. And so he's a POV and Stannis is still stuck in the eye of the beholder. And so that's all we get from him. Stannis is John as he's seen from the outside. Maybe how he'll be seen after it's all over, through the eyes of people who thought they knew him and now feel shut out. After all, look at what happens to Stannis' reputation after he fails in A Clash of Kings. Look at how they sing about him at the Purple Wedding, as this dark lord determined to claim power at any cost. And that's not entirely accurate, you know, as Davos thinks to himself in Storm of Swords, he threatens Edric Storm to get him moving with the, the threat that Stannis is going to be angry, just like when he cut off Davos' fingers. And Davos thinks, well, you know, in truth, that's a lie. Stannis wasn't angry. There was only an iron sense of justice in him. But he knows how to spin the story. He knows how to spin the narrative. And the same thing happens among Stannis' enemies after they defeat him. Now he fits snugly into their overall story structure they want to impose upon the war as the villain that they defeated. And he was the villain all along. And that's exactly how John describes himself in book one. This is how I'm going to be seen if I leave the Night's Watch. I'm going to be seen as an oathbreaker and friendless and damned. And there's this, again, that kind of allure to being miserable and alone because then you're done. You don't have to work. You can blame everyone else. Tyrion goes through similar things, wishes to be the monster that you already see me as. Very, very similar idea going on there. And as, as John proceeds through his story, he comes along similar situations and struggles that will define Stannis's. John encounters Craster, someone who sacrifices his own children to the others. And of course, Stannis's story is building towards him sacrificing Shireen. 
John encounters Egret, kissed by fire, a phrase which definitely has resonance with Stannis' story. And later on in Dance with Dragons, John will compare Melisandre to Egret. So both John and Stannis have this thing for redheads. Although with John and Egret, it's this, this tragic romance. They're torn apart by the war, could never really be. With Stannis and Melisandre, it's more like a deal with the devil situation. So it's it's darker, it's more cynical, but it's also something that's seen from the outside. So maybe that's how John and Egret would look to some people. Maybe if you're a... A Night's Watch diehard who's been raised to hate the wildlings. Maybe you'd look suspiciously at John hooking up with his wildling girl. Ah, they're they're just doing it for power. He's he can't be trusted. He's not one of us. John also encounters a new king beyond the wall. He encounters Mance Raider, who's kind of the anti-Stannis in terms of how he comes to power, how he thinks about kingship. And then, of course, Mance's forces are wiped out by Stannis when he arrives at the Wall. And we see that through John's eyes, and it's a powerfully ambiguous moment. On the one hand, it feels like a hero is showing up to save the day with the cavalry and the banners are waving and the horns are blowing. And it's exactly the kind of seen as the hero moment that Stannis wants. Not even to be that person, but to be seen that way. And that fits so well with him as a non-POV character, and it fits so well with his theme of perception that he just, he wants that moment where he looks like someone who came out of the songs that he's always been denied. And he kind of gets that at the wall, but there's that great ironic moment when even right before everyone shouts Stannis' name, John thinks to himself, Robert? Is that Robert who's shown up even though he's dead because he's looking at the stag banners? And that just gets across so beautifully how Stannis is stuck in the eye of the beholder that even in his crowning moment of triumph, people are still going to be comparing him to his older brother. And there's just no way he can get outside of that no matter what he does. And you have to either be able to make peace with it or it'll break you. And of course, Stannis is brittle and he'll break before he bend. He'll break before he bends. And I think that's what we're seeing with him in contrast to Jon Snow. Because there's also the the horror of him showing up at the wall. As much as he's saving the Night's Watch, he's also taking down people fighting with, with uh, clubs and handmade spears against his heavy armor and his, his cavalry. And they, they really don't stand a chance. So while on one hand, Stannis is pulling off the big damn hero move, saving the day, being the king, showing the realm that he can protect them, he's also, you know, running down a refugee camp. And John is aware of both sides of that coin and how it feeds directly into his own responsibilities when he becomes Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Before, right before he becomes Lord Commander, he has the initial meeting with Stannis atop the wall, which is a very complex and well-written dialogue scene that establishes how much these two have in common and also how much they don't. That John sympathizes with Stannis in terms of Stannis' claim that you know, we've been brought together here at the end of the world. We have to make peace. We have to work together with the wildlings against the greater threat. And that's the exact conclusion John is, is, is also reaching. This is the kind of way I want to move through the world. This is the legacy I want to leave behind. But there's also still the implicit threat with Stannis, the, the denial of anything that stands outside that conception of duty, the denial of the human heart. He insults Rob, says Rob was, was no true king, has a very uh, a distorted view of his campaign in that, as John thinks, those harsh words blow away whatever sympathy he might have felt for him because he loves his brother. And that the losing the pack is so important to John, and we feel that emotion because John is a POV character, and we don't feel as much with Stannis. I think in part because he feels it less, but also because we don't have a POV on him. And maybe if we were in his heads, we would feel that same kind of struggle and same kind of different emotions regarding Rob, regarding regarding Robert, regarding Renly. But we're we're deliberately being kept outside that and reminded that. You know, it's just a, a a lucky accident that we have access to Jon Snow's thoughts and that this colors how we think about him. And that Stannis is not a different person, whether you're in his head or not. It's all just in how you're looking at him. 
So we get the uneasy working relationship between John and Stannis in A Dance with Dragons, in which John tries to stick to his duty, but Stannis pulls him back to the north, back into passion plays. And I, I love the irony of that, that Stannis is the, the comparatively alienated, detached one, but he's the one pulling John into a situation where John has to re-experience his feelings and remember who he was at Winterfell. I love the give and take of their dynamic, how they attract and repel each other, like magnets he keep flipping around. Stannis is partially the person John wants to be. He's partially the person who's showing up to save the day in the far north and, and do his duty and be everyone John thought he would be when he set out to the Night's Watch. He's partially that. But Stannis is also partially the person John fears he will become in the eyes of others, that he's never going to be trusted and never seen as a part of the pack. On the other side of the relationship, John is partially the son Stannis never had. You can see Stannis opening up to him some, like during the, the, the Jano Slint execution, or uh, even in that first scene on the wall when Stannis puts his hand on John's shoulders, promises to make him a Stark. You can see a, a spark there that for Stannis, he's finally found uh, some way to leave a mark and some way to be seen differently, uh, a POV character who will actually uh, like him as he is rather than just remembering who he was. But Stannis also resents John for having his own place outside Stannis' master plan for that rejection of Winterfell when John becomes Lord Commander of the Night's Watch instead. So that's, again, Stannis feeling like he's never going to have access to that communal warmth, that intimacy. He's never going to be part of a pack. Stannis asserts himself in the north over the course of A Dance with Dragons, makes uh, various diplomatic and military plays to try to gain control there, but ultimately he has no long-term place. He's kind of an unexpected third party in the, the growing clash between the Bolton faction and the Stark loyalists, and both of those just kind of struggle to make him make sense in their pre-existing plans. That's a lot of the fun of reading A Dance with Dragons, is them all having to negotiate his presence. John is, is dealing with kind of the opposite problem, right? He has a connection to the North. He, he does understand the land. He does understand the people. But he also feels this need to restrain himself, to belong on the wall instead and be part of that family instead. And so you, you get this situation where they're, they're both kind of provoking each other's struggles without meaning to. Like simply in the, you know, trying to assist Stannis with his military matters in the North, John ends up calling on his own history, his own understanding of these people. That's the only way he can be useful to Stannis, but also reminds him that he used to belong there and doesn't anymore. And that there's this wall, so to speak, between him and his older life. So both end up acting in the other's place. Both end up kind of using each other as surrogates. John guards the wall, guards the realm against the others, and integrates the wildlings, which feels like it should be the job of the king. While Stannis goes for Winterfell to fight the enemies of House Stark, which is that's what John wants to do. That's what he ends up doing at the end when he sets it after the Pink Letter. That feels like it's his job. So both of them feel incomplete without the other. Like we've split a character into the POV and, and non-POV halves, and George is using the two of them, bouncing them off each other to play with perspective. Stannis gets his letter from Lyanna Mormont, who declares that there is no king in the north but whose name is Stark, and she's named after John's mother, and she is possibly talking directly about him, or maybe just inadvertently about him, de describing the name he's reached for, the identity he's wanted in the eyes of others for so long. But it's, it's Stannis who has to deal with that, and for Stannis it's a rejection. After John executes Stannis, uh, Janos Slint, Stannis gives him that, that parental nod, that nod of approval and support, and that, that's a wonderful moment in part because it's, it's a connection that both of them have been longing for. 
And that, uh, even, even just the, the writing of it, the way their eyes meet, I think locks us back into this questions of perspective that John and Stannis are, are seeing one another as if for the first time, as, as if no one else has ever seen them like that before and making that connection between each other. But you also have the flip side of that. You have a scene where like Stannis burns Mance, supposedly Mance. Of course, it actually turns out to be Rattleshirt. And John uh, cuts him with the mercy killing. So uh, and Stannis in that scene is the exact opposite of making that connection. He's scowling at John. That, that wall goes back up. And all, all these questions of, of duty and love are kind of swirling around one another. How, how do I act? What are, what are my interests and what are the interests of others? And am I just imposing my perspective Am I, should I be trying to reach for some more objective, detached view of the world? But in doing so, will I lose that connection that allows me to make humane decisions? And that's what leads, of course, I think, to was probably the ultimate parallel between John and Stannis' stories and the, the end game of George playing them off each other. And that is the parallel between Stannis burning Shireen and John killing Daenerys. And in some ways, these are inverted acts. You know, you could say that Stannis is trying to enhance his power, whereas Jon is is kind of bringing power collapsing down all around him. But in both cases, I think it's it's the the question that Aemon brings up to Jon in Book One: the idea that that love is the death of duty, and that these these two things can't coexist. And that when we when we ask people to give themselves up to a higher cause, however noble that might be, however necessary it might be we are at the same time taking away from them the reason to live. And that if you push people hard enough, they're always going to abandon their duty for, you know, for a brother's smile and the promise of love. And, you know, John claims to Mace Draymond that, that, that Ned would, would do the right thing no matter the cost. And Eamon says, all right, well, you know, then he's a rare man in that case. And I think with Stannis, we see what that would actually look like, someone willing to give up anything for a cause. And even as that's something we we profess to admire and find heroic, it's actually brutal in execution because it's also inhuman. You you lose your perspective. You you are no longer a POV character in a sense because you have become detached from that human heart. Now you are an other, so to speak. You are you are outside the POV and can only be seen from a distance because you've cut yourself off from the intimacy and understanding that the POV structure grants to certain characters and not to others. And so I think we see with Stannis not even who John will be necessarily, but how John will be remembered, how it will be when Jon Snow himself is no longer a POV character, but a character in stories told in universe. And I think he'll be remembered as the man who set his heart on fire. And, and, and a wicked man who destroyed his lady love, who broke that trust, who tried so hard to keep the enemy at bay that he became the enemy instead. And is that a fair reading of Jon Snow? Maybe, maybe not. No more than the bard's truth is the real truth. And no more than the stories that have been told and will be told about Daenerys. We're all just songs in the end if we're lucky. And I think you can see with Jon and Stannis that George might have more to say about the stories we tell than about the concrete reality. I think A Song of Ice and Fire is is ultimately more about perspective than anything else. And I think John and Stannis, when you put those characters together, the sons of fire, when you bring them together, I think that becomes unmistakably clear. I hope you enjoyed this, this one-off episode. Jeff's going to be back with us next week, and we'll keep going with the regular cast for A Storm of Swords, Are You Four? In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. A thank you to our patrons for supporting us. We'll see you next time.